I'm going to look with you for a few minutes at the story about these men from the east who followed the star to Bethlehem in search of a newborn king that turned out to be Jesus Christ. I got home from almost two weeks in the country of India. India is a fast-changing country with very long and deep roots that go back many centuries and thousands of years. And I spent the day in Madurai, which is in the state of Tamil Nadu, right in the south of India. Madurai is known as the city of temples. And there are a multiplicity of ancient temples all over the city, built to a variety of gods and goddesses. Somebody told me that one day he saw a man in Madurai who had an idol, and the idol was on the ground, and attached to it were ropes, and attached to these ropes were hooks, and the hooks were embedded in the flesh of this man in his back, and his shoulders, and as he pulled this idol, the flesh was stretched and pulled out as the man in excruciating pain pulled his idol to the temple of his God. What makes a man do something like that? Is he trying to do penance of some kind to counter some sin in his life? Is he trying to improve his karma that he'll come back in the next life in a better position than the life he is experiencing now? Is he trying to subjugate natural desires and natural comfort by this extreme form of discipline and self-inflicted pain? Is he trying to prove something to his God? The irony of that, of course, is that he may have made the God himself, fashioned it out of wood, and stone with his own hands. I came across an advertisement in India, and it was an advertisement for a manufacturer of God statues. Described itself as God statue manufacturers, suppliers, and wholesale exporters of religious statues, Indian God statues, and religious God statues. And it said in the small print, we can carve all these deities as per your own specification in different styles and sizes. And they presumably do good business. What makes people do this? Deep inside every human heart, there is a need for something bigger than ourselves. 
in which we can find refuge and meaning and purpose. I can't speak for that man with the hooks in his flesh pulling the heavy God up the road. But I know he's looking for something. You see, in the imminence of our lives, which are so localized, so short, so brief, we need to find something that is transcendent, bigger, more permanent, to which we can relate. Plato, one of the Greek philosophers, described man as a being in search of meaning. And all over the world, that is true. Here in this building, it is true. We are searching for meaning. We are searching for something that makes life make sense, no matter what the circumstance of life might be. On my way home, I traveled through Frankfurt Airport in Germany and was sitting, waiting for my flight to be called, and there was a guy sitting just opposite with a T-shirt on that said, be what you want to be. He looked a bit miserable, actually, so I don't know what he wanted to be. (laughs) I'm glad he wanted to be it. (laughs) But I I had a few minutes to sit and look at that T-shirt and ask myself, you know, does that really work? Be what you want to be. Or is it better to be who you are? But most of us are not satisfied with that. We want to be something we're not. Because around the corner, in some other life, in some other identity, in some other occupation, there is a real me waiting to get out, is the sense that lies behind that. And people are on a search for meaning, for purpose. And that search can express itself in all kinds of ways. We search after love. We search for relationships. We search to find our fulfillment in family life sometimes. We search in careers. We search in ambitions. We search in prosperity. We can search in travel. We can search in religion. We can search in sex experience. We can search in drugs that take us out of the real world and give us a fantasy illusion that we enjoy for the while, that we experience it. These men in this story were on a search It's a very familiar story, crops up in our carols and our nativity scenes, and every Christmas we probably at some point hear something about these men who came from the east. There's a few myths that have grown up around this story. I'll mention one or two of them. One is that there were three of them. We don't know how many there were. It doesn't say. It does say they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and probably that's where the idea of three came from, but they could have been 30. We don't know how many they were. Another myth is that they were kings. Now, it never says that in the Scripture. We have songs like, We Three Kings of Orient Are. When I was a kid, we had our own versions of that. We three kings of Orient are, one in a bus and one in a car, one on a bicycle sucking an icicle following yonder star. That's that's the clean version. (laughs) We had some other versions too. (laughs) 
but there's nothing to indicate they were kings. Another myth is that the star was a bit like a UFO, sort of suspended, and they were on their camels and following this sort of moving star. But actually, they said, we have seen his star in the east, past tense, in the east. They have come from the east, so they were traveling in a westwardly direction to get to Israel. If they were following a UFO-type star, they would have said, we have seen his star in the west and have been following it. But now we saw it back in the east. And I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. The other myth is that they were wise men. That is, they were very clever men. They're called wise men in some translations. But the New International Version we read from today correctly calls them magi, M-A-G-I. Now, magi is a Persian word, and it's difficult to translate accurately into English. But if you add the letter C on the end of magi, you get the word magic. And that's a clue, because these were men schooled in the magical arts. Almost certainly, they were astrologers. Now, astrology was widely practiced in the ancient world, though it still is widely practiced in the Western world today. Astrology is a study of the movement of the stars and the planets and the influence that they have on human affairs, particularly the position of the stars at the time that you were born in relation to the earth. And so many folks will know the astrological sign under which they were born. And that sort of uh, determines certain things about you and certain things about your circumstances. And 80% apparently of North American newspapers carry every day an astrological chart. And some people look at them. They check it to see what's going to happen to me today on the basis of these charts. In fact, here in North America, astrology is a $200 billion business every year. There are magazines devoted to astrology. So this is not some ancient thing that we dust off from a museum. This is a very present thing in our society as well. And these men were probably astrologers. They came from the east either from Persia or from Babylon. We know Persia today is the nation of Iran. We know Babylon as the nation of Iraq. And uh, they had back home in the east read in the stars about the birth of a king. Now, there have been various attempts to identify the star of Bethlehem the lineup of planets at the time, and how that might have given to them this understanding that a king was to be born. I'll give you several of the more popular ones, so nobody can be sure about any of them. In 7 BC, and by the way, when the calendar was set, there was a miscalculation. Uh, Herod died in 4 BC, and Jesus was born before Herod died. So Jesus was born maybe 4, 5, 6, even 7 BC. There's some uncertainties about that. But in 7 BC, there was a triple conjunction of the planets Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars. And in those days, Jupiter was understood to be the star of kings, and Saturn was associated with the Jews. So putting this combination together, 
The idea was that this to be interpreted as being a king of the Jews was being born. Another suggestion is the men saw an exploding nova or supernova where a distant star increases in light by millions, perhaps even billions of times its natural light and stays that way for several weeks. And in the ancient culture, seeing this unusual light, they attach some kind of significance and interpretation to it. That is a possibility. Some have suggested that Halley's Comet, being visible by 11 BC, and Halley's Comet, as you may know, comes into visible range of the Earth every 76 or 75 or 9 months or something years. It was last here in 1986. It was not visible from the Northern Hemisphere on that occasion. And I remember being in New Zealand at the time when it was most visible and being out in the southern island of New Zealand on a totally cloudless night and seeing Halley's Comet, which over the period of weeks would move across the sky with its its tail. And uh, some have suggested maybe that moving across the Middle East was indicating uh, direction that they had interpreted as being they should move from the east to the west to find some significant event that was taking place, and they'd narrowed it down to the birth of a king. William Barclay, who was a New Testament commentator, writes in the years 5 to 2 BC, there was an unusual astronomical phenomenon, a brilliant star called Mesorai, rose at sunrise and shone with extraordinary brilliance. Mesorai means the birth of a prince. And to these ancient astrologers, such a star would undoubtedly mean the birth of a great king. We cannot tell for sure what star the Magi saw, but we know that what they did see shone with some brilliance that spoke to them about the birth of a new king. And this was something in which they began to place their hope. They weren't only curious, They followed the implication of it. We don't know how long the journey was. If they came from Persia, they would have had to travel a lot of rugged terrain. They'd have to climb mountains. They had to cross the Euphrates River. There were no bridges in those days. They would travel through the desert, but all the time following a star that offered them hope. And all of us are looking for hope. Some of us are following all kinds of stars that we think will bring us hope. And again and again, we become disillusioned by them. They seem to offer something. We follow them. But when we get there, we find that they they are empty. Remember some years ago reading something by Bill Wyman, who was the bass guitarist with the Rolling Stones. He left them about 10 years ago now because he was too old and the others are still too old and they keep playing anyway. (laughs) But Bill Wyman wrote this. He said, the journey to the top was exciting. But when we got there, there was nothing there. It was empty. 
You may not be rolling stones, but you might have followed something that seemed to offer you hope and offered you meaning. But when you got there, it was empty. Where did the searching and seeking of these men take them? Well, it brought them first to the city of Jerusalem. The star, as they understood it, was that of the king of the Jews. When they got to Judah, they asked the question, well, who's the king of the Jews now? The answer is King Herod. So they went and knocked on his door, which is not a very smart thing to do, and said, where is the new king to be born? (laughs) They weren't being very wise, wise men at that point. Because, quite predictably, it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Well, here he is in his palace as king of the Jews, and some strangers knock on the door. Where's the new king of the Jews being born? Well, he was disturbed. But not only was he disturbed, he was also intrigued. And it says in the next verse, verse 4, that when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, that is the people who dealt with the scriptures and were the lawyers of their day, he asked them where the Christ, that means the Messiah, the anointed one that every Jew was expecting, where he would be born. And they answered in Bethlehem in Judea, But this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Now here's an interesting thing. When Herod asked the scribes and the teachers of the law where this Messiah was to be born, they knew the answer right away, and they quoted to him right away. They knew chapter and verse. They quote from the book of Micah in the Old Testament, and they quote something that was written about 750 years earlier. What these men discovered was this. They're not stepping into some fad, something thought of yesterday and brought about today. They were stepping into something which had deep roots that had been written about for centuries. You see, Jesus didn't just come out of nowhere. It wasn't just the world was going along nicely and trying to make the best of whatever it was, and suddenly on the scene came somebody, he was born, he lived, became a carpenter, became a teacher, became a preacher, before miracles, was eventually crucified, was buried, was raised again from the dead, and a great story came out of that. No, that's not where it begins. They discovered they were stepping into something which has very deep roots and goes back into history. I haven't counted this, but I'm told there are 333 prophecies about Christ in the Old Testament scriptures, which had been completed 400 years before Christ was born and were in circulation for several hundred years. You go to any synagogue 
in any community in Israel, and you could read any of the Old Testament scriptures. They were there on scrolls, brought out to be read when they met on Saturdays in the synagogue. And in those scrolls, in those scriptures, which we now have, and we call it our Old Testament, there are 333 prophecies, and the chances of them all becoming true are one in trillions and trillions. Somebody gave me the figure once, and it's got names I don't even know what they mean, like uh, Zilliquad Williams or something. Somebody told me this morning, it's been worked out, that if you were to take a little yellow post-it stick-on thing and write a cross on it, and then you were to turn upside down and you were to cover the whole of the province of Ontario with turned upside down post-it stickers and then be asked to find the one that has the cross on it, Getting it right will be about the same chance of all the prophecies about Christ coming true in one person. So extreme as to be statistically virtually impossible. And they'd all come right. But they did. I mean, can you imagine, I don't know if your mind works this way, can you imagine what would have happened if the wise man had arrived in Bethlehem and discovered that the baby was a girl? (laughs) Well, there's a 50-50 chance it would be a boy or a girl. So it was a boy, okay, that's 50-50. But what about the fact he was in Bethlehem at all? When this was written 750 years before, out of you, Bethlehem will come a ruler of my people Israel. It is a fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, humanly speaking, by a sheer fluke, because his mother Mary and Joseph, to whom she was committed to be married, lived in Nazareth, about a 100 miles north of Bethlehem. Long way in those days. And it just so happened that Caesar Augustus, away in Rome, decided he wanted to do a census of the whole of the Roman Empire, found out how many people lived there, and he ordered that everybody should go to the hometown of the husband and father of each family, and there they should be counted. And Joseph, though he lived in Nazareth, his family came from Bethlehem. And so they went down to Bethlehem for the date of the census, and it just so happened that when they arrived there a little bit late, so much so there were no beds available, and they had to be put up in the stable beside an inn, that that was the very night that the baby was born. Had he been born a few days earlier, he would have been born in Samaria. Had he been born six weeks later, no doubt they'd be back in Nazareth because they only came here for the census. That doesn't take long, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, okay. Now before you go home, go and visit granny and a few relatives and then go home again. They had work back in Nazareth to get on with. But 750 years before, 750, that's a long time, they had written, but you... Bethlehem, in Judea, in the land of Judah, 
Out of you will come a ruler who shut my people. And when Herod calls in his scribes and his lawyers, he says, where's this Messiah going to be born? They know exactly the answer. Down in Bethlehem. Here it is. Micah, 750 years before is written. Well, 50-50, it's a boy or a girl. Okay, it's a boy. Born in Bethlehem? Hmm. Well, let's say the very outside, there's a 25% chance of that, maybe. But not only that, Herod had said to these men, when you find the baby, come back to Jerusalem on your way home and tell me where he is, then I too will go and worship him. That wasn't his intent. His intent was he'd go and slaughter him. And the wise men were warned in a dream, don't you go back to Jerusalem because Herod will kill him. So they went home another way and Herod ordered the destruction, the massacre of all the baby boys in Bethlehem. And Joseph got wind of this and took Mary and the baby Jesus and headed down in the opposite direction down to Egypt. So in verse 14, he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. Now listen to this. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is Matthew. Do you know something? A prophet already said that the son would come out of Egypt and that was written by Hosea 800 years before. Well, he's a boy, that's 50-50. Born in Bethlehem, well, maybe 25% possibility. But actually, not just in Bethlehem, he actually went down to Egypt. Wow, that's a, boy, that's a, the odds are getting shorter now. Not only that, when Herod died, they came back to Nazareth And it says in verse 23, he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled, was said to the prophet, he'll be called a Nazarene. And that's a rather obscure reference, but it's a quotation from the book of Isaiah written 700 years before. So here you've got a remarkable set of circumstances. He was born in Bethlehem by a fluke, humanly. He went to Egypt because of Herod's killing the babies to get away from his vengeance. And then they came back to Nazareth when Herod had died. And it just so happened that 750 years before the prophet Micah had written, he'll come from Bethlehem. 800 years before Hosea had written out of Egypt, I called my son. And 700 years before it had been written that he'd be a Nazarene. Incidentally, before the town of Nazareth even existed. Listen. We have a much better reason for believing in the accuracy of the story of Jesus, the fact that he was born, lived, died, and rose again from the dead, than that the Bible said that he did. And the better reason for believing it is that the Bible said that he would long before he did. Anybody can write history after the event. I can tell you what happened yesterday, no problem. I cannot tell you what will happen tomorrow. If you pick up today's newspaper, read last week's news, you're not impressed by that, you expect to do that. If you pick up today's newspaper and read next week's news, and next week it happens exactly as you read this week, you probably would want to know who the editor is. Do you know the Old Testament scriptures? Are next week's news written 700, 800 years in advance, 
and more. You remember that Jesus eventually was crucified. And when he was crucified after a mockery of a trial, they put nails into his hands and nails into his feet. Then they took the cross and they raised it and dropped it into a hole in the ground. And the effect of dropping the cross into the hole in the ground would be that many of the bones in his body would be knocked out of joint. As he hung there, The people at the foot of the cross divided up his clothing. They cast lots to decide who would have the best of his clothing. With that in mind, let me read you this verse from Scripture. It says this, A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. An exact detailed description of what happened on the cross. And do you know when that was written? It was written a thousand years before Christ was born. You can read it in Psalm 22. A thousand years before Christ was born. Written by David. You see, in the search for meaning which these men had and were on. Don't try to find your role in the temporary passing fads of today. They'll be here today, they will be gone tomorrow. Yes, there are all kinds of winds that blow and they come and we're impressed by them, but they're gone within a few years. Find your roots in something deep. Find your roots in something that goes back in time and that talks about the future as well as the present. And here you see, they find when they step into this story, they're stepping into something which has roots that go back centuries. And you and I will find our meaning and our purpose in life in something which is much bigger than we are, that's much bigger than our own times, that's much bigger than our own experience, that's much bigger than our own little lives. We need to find significance and meaning in that which is eternal. I was due to come home from India on Thursday. But a friend of mine in England died. He had been battling with cancer for two years. And his funeral was to be on Friday. And so I was able to change my flight and uh, come back through England and be there to attend his funeral. And as at the end of the funeral service, his coffin was taken and it was lowered into the grave in a little cemetery. I couldn't help, as I'm sure we all do in such circumstances, think about the significance of his life. Is this really the end? Before the service, a slideshow covering his life had been shown on the wall of the front of the church. And there are pictures of him as a baby, learning to walk, 
on his first bicycle, first day at school, becoming a teenager, getting his first car, going to university, getting married, the birth of his three children, the lovely family picture of them together, times on vacation. And he and his wife had come and stayed with us about uh, six months ago. But now it's over. Is that it? Another name on a tombstone that with time will become eroded and forgotten? Or is the 60 years of his human life just a very small part of the story? You know what the scripture tells us in the book of Psalms? God says, before you were born, I knew you. Before you were conceived in your mother's womb, I had a plan for your life. You read it in Psalm 139. Remember when our kids were small, Hannah asking Hillary, my wife, where was I before I was born? I remember Hillary giving a brilliant answer. You were in the heart of God. And Hannah, as a little child, used to say, I used to be in the heart of God. <laughs> and she was, and she still is. <laughs> before ever... You were conceived in your mother's womb. You were conceived in the heart of God and the mind of God and the purpose of God. And Christmas brings to us the story of the birth of Jesus, brings to us that there is a cosmic story that is not only bigger than you and I are, Jesus himself, it says of him, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking there of Christ, whenever the beginning began, he was already there. So his story began before the beginning. And he is the Alpha and the Omega, which is the A and the Z of the Greek alphabet. He's the beginning, he's the end. And what these men would need to discover was this, that your three score years and ten life at best will only find its meaning when you start to connect and become integrated with the big story when you become related to God and you connect with God and you come into relationship with God. Why do so few people do that? Well, here's an interesting feature of this story. That when Herod called together these chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them whether Christ was to be born and they knew the answer, don't you find it intriguing that though they knew the answer, they seemed to be complacent about it? You see, suppose you were a scribe or a teacher of the law. Your job was to handle the Old Testament scriptures 
And supposing you knew that the central theme of that story was that one day God will send a Messiah, a Redeemer, a Savior to his people. And every year you wonder, will this be the year? And every baby born you wonder, is this the child? And then one day some eastern strangers come and knock on your door and they say, we have seen a sign in the east. Where is this Messiah to be born? And the king calls you in and says, tell us what the answer is. And you say, oh, I know the answer. It's in Bethlehem in Judea. Look at it in the book of Micah. Here it is. Don't you think that the moment you'd given that information, you'd go outside, get on your horse or your donkey or your camel or your bicycle and get down to Bethlehem as fast as you can to see for yourself the hope of Israel? Wouldn't you think you'd do that? But they don't. They remain complacent. They perhaps have become skeptical. You know, familiarity breeds contempt. Sometimes we can be so familiar with these things, they lack their freshness anymore. And you're not going to be looking for Christ because you are skeptical about Christ. You become disillusioned in some way. There may be all kinds of reasons for that. Maybe things have happened in your life and you reason, well, if there was a God, that wouldn't happen. But it has, so I'm, I'm skeptical now. Maybe you've been part of the church, you've been hurt in your experience in the church, and you say, I don't want to be part of that. Maybe you've seen Christians and you've seen a two-sidedness to them. You've seen hypocrisy and it's turned you off. And you say, I'm not going to pursue that because I've seen stuff I don't like. Be careful. Because though those reasons for your disillusionment may be valid, you've got to get through to Christ himself. You've got to seek for Christ himself, not for religiosity or for Christianity. I find it interesting that the Magi who are from the East, unfamiliar with these things, become the most serious about them. Whereas the scribes who are from Israel, they were Jews, were very familiar with these things, but they were not serious about them. They just knew the answer, went back in and probably had a cup of coffee and forgot about it. We can be surrounded by the things of God, but unless we are seeking for God, we're not going to find him. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Ask, it'll be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Listen to this. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. That's why I don't believe anybody who says, I want to find God, but I can't. They may say that when they're in the process, haven't yet come to meet him, but anybody who seeks. Jesus said, everyone who seeks finds. The only people who never find are the people who never seek. The only people who never receive are the people who never ask. The only people to whom the door stays shut are the people who never knock. Ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. What happens if you seek the wrong thing? He will guide you in direction, the right thing. These men were seeking through astrology. That's the wrong thing. Scripture in the Old Testament is very critical of astrology. But though they were seeking an astrology, it led them to Christ. 
If the seeking is genuine, you seek in the wrong place, you bring it to the right place. What if you're asking for the wrong thing? He'll give you the right thing. If a child asks for fish, you're not going to give him a snake, said Jesus. He'll give you the right thing. What happens if you knock on the wrong door? He'll open the right door. When you're seeking and you're knocking and you're asking is genuine. See, God looks not as on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. You may outwardly look as though you're going in the wrong direction. But when the heart is disposed towards seeking to find God, he'll bring you to himself. Because, you see, not only are we to be seeking God, but he is seeking us. The scripture says, speaking of Jesus' mission statement, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. What am I doing? I'm seeking in order to save that which is lost. I think I've said before, to be lost is a wonderful description because to be lost is to be valuable I'm drinking a bottle of water and I lose my bottle somewhere. I put it down as I often do. It's no big deal. It's not worth very much. If I lose my wallet, if my driver's license and my credit cards and my money, I ask everybody I know, have you seen my wallet? It's lost. It's valuable. When it says he came to seek and to save that which was lost, that very description puts incredible value on every human being. We're lost because we're wanted. These men were not seeking fulfillment by looking into some pursuit that would bring them a little bit of fun. They were looking for God himself. How do we know that? Because it said in verse 2, we saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. Not we've come for therapy, we've come for healing, or we've come for even forgiveness, or we've come even for everlasting life, or we've come to get our problems fixed. We've come to worship. We've come to discover the one to whom we can relate our lives in such a way that we become so related to him that as worshipers and trusters in him, we might enjoy a living experience of him. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 3, verse 11, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. And he has put eternity into the hearts of man. He has put into the hearts of human being the idea that these years on earth are not the whole story. How can they be? If it is, it's just a joke and it's a bad joke at that. There's something bigger than myself. And as C.S. Lewis said, if God has given us appetites that don't have a satisfaction here on earth, we have an appetite for food and we can eat. We have an appetite for relationship and we can enjoy friendship. You have a sexual appetite and we can enjoy a sexual relationship. But we have an appetite for the eternal that we cannot satisfy in this life. And Lewis says this, it's because we were made for another world. The appetite itself is evidence. We're made to know God. 
to experience God, to be loved by God and to love God and to worship God. And Augustine in the 5th century wrote, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There were three responses in this story. There were the scribes. They neglected Christ. They knew the answers, but they neglected. There was Herod. He rejected. Did all he could to destroy him. And there were the wise men, the magi, and they accepted And they went down to Bethlehem. And it says, they worshipped him and they opened their treasures. Which is an interesting association of ideas in that sentence. They worshipped and opened their treasures. That is, everything was valuable to me. I'm giving to Jesus Christ. I'm going to live out of that relationship with him. If you choose to neglect, nobody else can do anything about that whatsoever. You may come back next week and the next week and the next week and the next week and the next week, but you get nowhere. If you choose to reject, so I'm having nothing to do with this, nobody can do anything about that, and you may never come back. But if in your heart there's an awakening going on, if in your heart you sense something stirring and you sense maybe a possibility, an excitement that you've really not seen before, yes, maybe I can know God. Maybe my life in this very temporary role that I have in this body can be connected to something bigger that is so much more significant and makes my life so significant. And that not only is bigger, but will involve me in that which is eternal and give to me eternal life. And just come to Jesus Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm lost without you. Come to live in my life. Cleanse me of that which separates me from you. My sin for which Christ died on the cross. And come to bring that life and freedom and meaning and joy I never had before. Whether a young person or been around for decades, There needs to come a moment when you tell Jesus Christ you want to know him and begin to discover the adventure of the life which you were created, lived in relationship with him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we are connected with something which is not just a minority interest, it's just religious superstition, but we're connecting with something that is true and real, with a God who is alive, a God who sent his son, that having been made a human being, he might take upon himself the just punishment for our own sin and rebellion, that we might be reconciled to God, made into new people, and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Thank you, it begins here at Christmas. I pray that there'll be many of us who are seeking you and thank you that we'll find you and enjoy a living relationship with you that will make everything else in life make sense and derive value for everything else in our lives. Pray for those who are battling in their hearts and minds over this issue. 
I pray they may sense and feel the drawing presence and power of the Holy Spirit drawing them to yourself. And thank you for what you're going to do in their lives. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.